Hi, everyone. Thank you all again for listening to this podcast. And for those who have stayed with it up to this point, hopefully this episode, our Q&A episode, will be a good way to close off the podcast. I'm your host and the co-producer of the Dharmaland album, Brian Chittister. And we have a lot of questions today, which you, our listeners, sent in through my solicitation on the Eden Abbey blog on our website. So without further ado, question one comes to us from On My Turntable. And the question is, are there plans to release more of Eden's songs? The simple answer is yes, there are plans. I have spent the last 27 years researching Abby's life and have taken part as a producer or somebody who created liner notes or sequences or, or basically overseen production of several compilation albums of archival recordings and then of course Dharmaland and the Themes EP which were new recordings of Abby songs that he never recorded in his lifetime. And I have a desire to do more of both. There are a few more unrecorded bodies of music that Abby left in sheet music form only and there are quite a lot of recordings that he made during his lifetime of songs. A handful of those songs he recorded 10, 20, 30 times over a 15 or 20 year period. And so I'd like to do compilations of particularly his 70s and 80s and 90s material of which nothing has really been reissued so far but there's also a lot of material from the 50s and 60s that was either released and never compiled or was recorded and unreleased. So I hope that answers your question and I don't have any timeline for when those things will happen. The next most important thing that I've, I am moving on to or have moved on to uh, in the wake of Dharmaland is the As the Wind documentary, the full-length documentary about Abby's life. So after that is complete then there will probably be a lot of opportunity to release more of Abby's recorded material or unrecorded material. Taboo Girl 123 asks, is Ixtahuele going to tour Dharmaland? That is not a question that I'm really equipped to answer as far as I understand because it was released during the pandemic and because they have already started releasing new material, new singles and whatnot that the ship might have sailed for a full-on Dharmaland tour. I think at best what we could hope for is that if some live shows surrounding the release of As the Wind, the Avi documentary, give us a, a chance to mount like full-on Avi suites, like the Nature Boy suite or Eden's Island or Dharmaland in a live setting, that Ixta would perform Dharmaland. That's my hope, that's my thinking, but I can't say for sure and I don't know, I, I don't want to speak for them, but I don't think there is our plans for a Dharmaland tour on the docket at present. Anonymous writes, you mentioned some other suites by Abby in the podcast and other songs he wrote in the same period as Dharmaland. What are the chances these will be recorded someday? So I think what you're referring to is Suite of Life and the Song of Eden and Anna and the scripture of the golden age. I probably mentioned a couple other Abbey song suites and there were a few others. There was a, a late 1950s mini suite or four part suite called the Rock and Roll Spiritual, which was recorded but is not released. And maybe that will end up on one of those compilations I spoke about earlier. But in terms of 
Suite of Life and Song of Eden and Anna and the Scripture of the Golden Age, those are very much a question mark. And so I like this question. It <laughs> sort of gets into my intention as a historian and producer of creative historical content going forward. So the Scripture of the Golden Age is a project that Abi worked on for the last 20 years of his life. He did a version of it in the 70s with a producer named John Greek. He started a few more times in the early to mid 80s with a couple producers, one of them being Tony Martin Jr., the son of the, the famous 1940s and 50s crooner Tony Martin, and a, a guy named Scott Seeley. And I guess they didn't get very far, and so then around 1987, 88, Abi met Joe Ramersa at the Salty Dog Studios in the San Fernando Valley, and they started a collaboration that lasted somewhere between six and eight years, and they worked on several versions of the full Scripture of the Golden Age, and that body of recordings remains sequestered because of legal wrangles between Joe Ramersa and those who are claiming Abby's estate. Hopefully that will all get ironed out in the near future and the original Abby recordings for the Scripture of the Golden Age can be recorded and released. The Suite of Life, like Eden's Island and like the Dharmaland music, is what I might describe as kind of an epic in the vernacular. So Abby wrote the Suite of Life lead sheets and scores, some of them are full scores with harmonies and even like full arrangements and tempos and instrumentation on them in the 1940s, roughly 1940 to 45. So Suite of Life, even though it was copyrighted in 1973, finally, the actual folio, which is about 85 pages, dates from the early to mid 40s. So it is the first long form suite that Abi ever wrote himself and it was unrecorded. We don't have any recordings of any of it, although some of the melodies did get recycled for the Nature Boy Suite. Some got recycled for the Dharmaland songs, uh, which became the Song of Eden and Anna Suite, which became the Scripture of the Golden Age Suite. So the Suite of Life is a really compelling early document of Abi's creative process and I'm very, very interested in seeing that be recorded and perhaps performed live. It's not quite as pop culture and vernacular as Eden's Island and Dharmalan and Nature Boy Sweet were or are in that it seems that Abi, when he was creating the Suite of Life in the 1940s was heavily influenced by composers like Chopin and Cyril Scott and it definitely harkens back to his early education as somebody who studied orchestral music and was a band leader and arranger in the town of Chanute, Kansas, where he grew up as a foster kid or as an orphan. So when he wrote Suite of Life, he had not fully made the transposition as an artist into a Tim Pan Alley songwriter. I think he was still sort of hearkening back to this idea that he would lead an orchestra. But I can't say for sure. We're still in the sort of in the discovery phase in terms of suite of life. But to answer the original question, there is a desire on my part to see suite of life be recorded anew and scripture of the golden age be released and some of the other mentioned Abi song suites.
be released in whatever form, whether they be new recordings or archival releases. Okay, everything is everything rights. Thank you so much for doing this. Does Ixtawele plan to record more Abes or Abi music? My sense is that this was a one-off and I personally have not serviced them more unrecorded sheet music or lead sheets of Abis at this point. And I also think they probably don't want to be pigeonholed as the band that covers Eden Abes or Abi music. So you never know. And then the next question is from Too Many People 89, who writes, Eden is my favorite. How long until we get more? And I think I kind of answered that above. We're now working on As the Wind. There are also some legal issues with the archival recordings and the existing estate and whatnot that have to be ironed out. So in terms of new recordings or new releases, could be a little, little bit of time. But rest assured, we're working on it. All right. Magic underscore Letty writes, I love this podcast. What do you think Eden would think of Dharmaland? Honestly, I don't know, and I'm not really sure it was my intention to reach across the Great Divide and have a, a kind of metaphysical conversation with Abi. My goal was really to be consistent with his other song suites and his larger body of work and to create a work that felt coherent and exciting and listenable in and of itself that further examined and showcased his talent as a songwriter and as a philosopher and as a thinker. Okay, Carlos96 underscore fanboy writes, Hi, do you know what happened to Eden's Island Deluxe Edition on Lights in the Attic? And the answer is, yes, I have a sense of what happened with that deluxe edition or that box set. It right now is stuck in legal limbo. Lights in the Attic were the distributor of it, and I believe they had started taking pre-sales, but I don't think they were the producer of the deluxe edition. I think it was produced by a company out of Austria, if I'm not mistaken. And I was hired to write the liner notes and help with the selection of songs on the second disc or the bonus disc of songs that were either recycled for the Eden's Island album or were early attempts at doing that style of music by Abi in the 1950s or that might be considered a precursor to the style of Eden's Island. So that's what my involvement was and my understanding of it right now is that like the scripture of the Golden Age, it is being sequestered or held up by negotiations or attempted negotiations with the Abes estate or those who are claiming to be the Abes estate. Samuel Chell writes, congrats, Brian, you did a wonderful job with this project and should be proud. The podcast is quite informative as well. You seem to have designed Dharmaland with a loose narrative in mind. Do you think Abi himself had it worked out when he wrote the sheet music in 1963? No, I don't think it was worked out to the degree that we worked it out for the final release of Dharmaland. But I think that all of the ideas and the way in which those things managed to cohere on the album 
were quite implicit in the lyrics and poems and sheet music that were left behind. And so in that sense, I do think that he had somewhat worked it out in that I think Abi in 1963 had worked out a consistent philosophy and possibly even a consistent theology of ideas, the main ones being universal love and the gateway to the transcendent being accessible through nature or through an understanding of nature. And so in that way, I think when you look at Abi's larger philosophy and you look at his larger body of work, it makes it so that what was basically a fragment in terms of the Dharmaland songs or the Dharmaland sheet music has the ability to more explicitly cohere when you start putting those pieces together because it's becomes almost impossible to go this way or in an opposite way from Abi's larger body of work because his work sort of almost naturally feels coherent. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think because he had the basic worldview behind it worked out so thoroughly that almost no matter what he touched, musically or lyrically, it always seemed to have that very specific vantage of somebody sitting beneath the Hollywood sign in a lotus position observing the world. And in that way it was really enjoyable and fun to make the ideas feel more explicit. Next question comes from Julie McMahon and she writes, my first question is what kind of message does Dharmaland send out to the world today? And the second question is what kind of goal did you have in mind when you set out to create Dharmaland? And do you feel you met that goal as envisioned? So I'll answer the second one first. I think what I want to say about that is that my goal with Dharmaland was perhaps different than my vision with Dharmaland. My goal was simply to put out a new recording of an unreleased body of Abi work. And so in the early days when I first found this music, it was almost like just fine a capable artist or group or orchestra who can just lay this stuff down so that the world can hear what else he did. And I was really trying to expand the body of work that Abi had out in the marketplace, basically. There just was not much beyond the myriad covers of Nature Boy and the Eden's Island album. My vision as I got going sort of modified through time, but I think the main sense of it was that it needed to be a work that was consistent with other song cycles in Avi's larger canon. So Dharmaland was, first of all, not an academic exercise or some attempt to accurately, to the letter, divine what Avi would have done in 1962 or 63 using research and scientific methodology and whatnot. It was more of a creative undertaking. So on the one hand, it wasn't like this free-for-all, let's do whatever we want with Abi's songs and melodies, arrangement and performance-wise. It was more or less what I would describe as an attempt to create a song cycle or a long-form work in the Abi mode of how he conceived and produced other long-form works. And so the intent was to 
as I said, be consistent with his larger canon, including his philosophy and even his theology. So maybe think of it like the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, which was a story of Dharma or life's purpose as told through a dialogue between a princely warrior and the Godhead personality of Krishna. And this text was basically inserted into a larger body of late BCE Brahmanic scriptures entitled the Mahabharata. And it needed, according to most scholars and practitioners, to be consistent with the Mahabharata for it, the Bhagavad Gita, to fit into that larger body of work. And so Dharmaland being an Abhi fragment or an unfinished, unrealized set of interconnected songs had to work firstly as a coherent work in itself and then as something consistent with its larger canon. The other question that Julie had was, what kind of message does Dharmaland send out to the world today? I like this question a lot. I think on the one hand, when you listen to Abhi's music, because it's so infused with references to older fairy tales, older mythologies, and older you know, religious traditions and scriptures, it almost seems like it doesn't relate to the present at all. It, it just has this kind of out of time, almost timeless feel to it. And it seems like the way in which it relates to the present is kind of up to the listener. You know, it in some ways seems to want to tap into that Jungian idea of the collective unconscious. And I'm fine with that. But I do think, you know, in songs like Dharma Man, there is an attempt to acknowledge that there is a subculture going and while Dharmaland feels in some way almost like a medieval or classical piece in places it also does feel modern and even contemporary in the fact that it is so gentle of spirit in that as a work it asks you to not get caught up in a lot of the day-to-day -day distractions or things that could cause despair, but instead to transcend by first accepting the underlying fact of impermanence and suffering in the world, and then by using that as a gateway to becoming aware of the greater possibility of life, the greater humor, the greater journey, and the greater experience or participation in the metaphysical or the spiritual. And I think that's what Abhi is trying to teach, or at least set down the example for potential listeners in, in his time in the 60s when he wrote it. And I think that equally applies to today. You know, there are a lot of distractions and there are a lot of reasons to be concerned, most especially because of the cultural divide that seems to be deepening, not lessening. And yet I think Abhi's answer to that is to be sensitive to it but also in some ways to transcend all of that. And that, that example of being both willing to acknowledge the divide, but also to live life not in its parts, but to experience it as a whole, to experience it as a sort of fairyland experience or as a Dharmaland experience is the goal of life. You know, we want to experience the interconnectedness of all things and we want to feel like we're a part of something bigger and I think that the message that is embedded in these sheet musics very much corresponds with that idea of risking 
enchantment and receiving enlightenment. So Buddha Boy Wan writes, I'm crazy about Fire of the Soul. How is it not your favorite track too? <laughs> well, when I say there's songs on Dharmaland, this song or that song are my favorites. I'm not really saying that to influence anybody or to act like I somehow have a, a, you know, some sort of critical insight into you know, which tracks are good, better, and best. I, I don't really see things on a gradient scale. To me, there were just a few tracks that I thought the deeper you go into them, the more you sort of are able to discover Dharma Land. And then some of the tracks are just really compellingly great, but I think you kind of get it in the first few listens. I'm not saying that about Fire of the Soul. I, I absolutely love the song as well. And I think the ones that I said were my favorite in the podcast were New Anthem, Dharma Land Parts 1 and 2, and Bualto. And again, basically I just chose those three because I felt like they were so different from anything else that was in pop culture. And I also felt that there was a bit of sort of perfumed magic about them that the longer you listen to them, the more you listen to them, the deeper you fall under their spell and that they sort of guide you around Abby's imaginary landscape in a very pictorial way, so. Okay, Venus underscore Ariadne 01 writes, Darmalan is amazing. Thank you for bringing Abby's music back. Whatever happened to his flutes? So there was a bag of kind of unfinished flutes that he left with Joe Remersa in the larger archive of handmade drums and master tapes and photos and sheet music and whatnot that Abby stored with Joe during the last years of his life and then Joe inherited. And so there are some unfinished flutes there, but the one that we used on the track itself came from a couple who lived at the Ananda Ashrama in La Crescenta up near Tahunga Canyon in the 1960s when Abby and his son Zoma lived there. And Abby bequeathed them a flute which they retained for all these years and brought to the session so that we could use it. And the flute, as soon as we recorded with it on A Boy and a Melody and Scene Part 2, was immediately taken back to them. So that's what happened to that flute. And again, some of the half-finished or incomplete flutes that Abby was making remain with Joe. Chris Aleftheriatis writes, Bravo, Brian, my friend, you are so creative. I only listened to the first two episodes so far, but they are so interesting. How did Eden learn about so many symbols and world religions? So Abi himself claimed that from a young age, he had a dream of himself as sort of a holy person lying under a great tree. His adopted or his foster mother in Chinook, Kansas, remembered him as always being an ethereal or esoteric person. He definitely was a free spirit from a young age, and I think that contributed to the reason why he left on his sojourn across the country by foot and freight train as a young person in the 1930s and 40s. He used to tell his wife Anna that he was born knowing, but in his archive there are some books, there are a lot of notes that he wrote about various ideas and sometimes he attributes those notes, not often, but according to Young Bear Roth and other Abby friends that I've interviewed over the years, he was just very widely read, you know, and, and 
it's been difficult to put down the exact sources of what he read, but you know we do have some sense of the etymology of his interest in symbols and world religions and how that found its way into his work. I would say on a larger level, he uses symbols as a way for his songs to give the listener an experience or a participation in the metaphysical or the spiritual. So he uses these symbols, these widely regarded and almost timeless symbols as kind of shorthand to draw we the listener in to the larger ideas that he wants to expose us to. Don't believe the truth with an F writes, mana is dope, how did you guys get Kaja? I think I already answered that in episode four of this podcast, the episode about mana. But basically we, myself and John Weiner, who is the executive producer of Dharmaland and my co-director of the documentary, went to see her at a live show in Brooklyn, asked her to participate in Dharmaland on the song Mana, and then sort of followed up for three or four months until she actually did the recording session. Jennifer Braverman writes, this is a great resource for anyone interested in going deeper with the album. How close to your original vision do you think the final version turned out to be? So again, as I said earlier, my vision was different than my goal. My goal, as I said earlier, was to just get something else out there from a, you know, a lost body of Edenabes or Edenabi work. And my vision for it changed a lot as we got into it. So my original vision was my track list, the overall concept of creating another imaginary landscape titled Dharmaland after Eden's Island, and to do it in kind of a combination of exotica and proto-psychedelic styles. So that was the impetus for getting Ixtahuele, that was the impetus for choosing the 12 songs that were on the album, and that was the impetus for calling it Dharmaland. But of course, like, the vision changed as we got going more. It sort of left my hands at one point from the conceptual stage into Ixta's hands because they are professional musicians and I'm not. And then at that point, it came back and we started to go over the recordings and the mixes in a more granular way where we could start to figure out how to broaden the vision, make the songs work together more into a coherent song cycle and come up with a vision for it that was both attainable and felt like it fit into Avi's larger body of work. The next question is from Tim F-OZ or Tim F-Oz or maybe Tim F-Ounces. <laughs> Anyway, he writes, Joe Remersa was my editing teacher. Did he really know Eden Abbey? How crazy you got to make this album? And the simple answer is yes, Joe did know Abbey for the last seven or eight years of Abbey's life. Abbey died on March 3rd, 1995. And Joe knew and worked with Abbey as a collaborator and as Abbey's sound engineer for the final recordings that Abby made, and so Joe was our most obvious choice to be the engineer of Dharmaland. And we were also really blessed that he did such a fantastic vocal on Fire of the Soul. So, okay, 
Next question comes from Barefoot Ted, who is a friend of the production, friend of the show, and a fellow researcher of mine who I mentioned in at least one of the episodes of this podcast. Ted's question to us is, what do you think the role of California is in Abi's conception of Dharmaland? Or maybe better yet, why California? And what is it about California that made the music in Abi's mind come alive so lucidly here? So thank you, Ted. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really solid question or series of questions that I love. And I think what you're getting at here is what was the cultural influence of California and its many thinkers on Abi and Dharma land. And so I think the best way to answer that is that basically, as Billy Joel said, like he didn't start the fire. It was always burning. And in the case of people like J. William Lloyd or the other kind of proto-nature boys or proto-hippies that seem to have existed in California from the early 20th century up until Abby and the California Nature Boys and the release of Nature Boy by Nat King Cole in 1948 was pretty consistent. And so I don't think that Abby, in terms of his worldview, was a particularly innovative person. I think he took a lot of his ideas from various sources and what really made him, I think, innovative or unique was that he started to apply some of these really cosmic and forward-thinking ideas to music. I also believe in such a thing as an affinity of minds. And in the case of Abi, this idea comes in very, very handy because we don't have, you know, in terms of archival materials, very many of the books he actually read and we don't have a list either. We know basically from secondhand accounts or from people who knew him personally that he was widely read in both spiritual and scientific literature. We know from his own quotes that he was familiar with the teachings, for example, of Yogananda and Krishnamurti and that he was associated in the 1950s with a guy named Krishnaventa who had a commune near Simi Valley in Southern California called the Fountain of the World. We know that Abi read Albert Einstein and Johannes Kepler because he, he said he did in various interviews. And we assume that he read John and Vera Richter's books because he worked for their LA Raw Foods restaurants, the Eutrophians, in the 1940s. He was washing dishes and performing music for the restaurant's guests and with his fellow California nature boy pals and whatnot. But what we don't know is if he was actually influenced by, say, William Pester, the German nature mensch who lived in Palm Springs during the 1920s and 30s and was himself something of a proto-hippie and kind of local celebrity. We don't know if Abi had any contact, in fact, with any of the German expat health seekers and gurus, but we do know that he knew the American health entrepreneur and author Bernard McFadden because Abby actually washed dishes and played piano in McFadden's hotel lobby in South Beach, Miami in the 1930s and 40s. It was called the Deauville Hotel. And we know this because there's direct evidence of that. We have photos 
and news clippings from the 1940s, from just after the time when Nature Boy was released, saying that he lived in Miami, he was taken under the wing of McFadden and his wife at the time, that in the after hours of the hotel lobby piano player, Bobby would come out of the restaurant or the cafe where he was washing dishes and he would sit down at the piano and he would play these captivating melodies and it sort of became a little bit of a novelty for that hotel and its guests who recognized that it was strange that somebody could be washing their dishes and come out and play such beautiful music. So we know that Abby was in contact with Bernard McFadden, who was a major early health food pioneer and, and health pioneer in the early to mid 20th century, because we have direct evidence of that. We assume from Abby's lyrics and poems and various song suites that he was familiar with or influenced by Barefoot Ted's research subject, J. William Lloyd, that Abby was influenced by Friedrich Nietzsche, by Walt Whitman, perhaps by Samuel Coleridge's poem, Rime of the Ancient Mariner, which is similar in ways to Abby's song, Lamar. There seems to be an affinity between Jack Kerouac's Dharma Bums and Scripture of the Golden Eternity books and Abby's songs, Dharma Land and and his Scripture of the Golden Age project. Kerouac also mentioned some nature boy saints in Venice Beach in his book On the Road. But again, these are references and not hard facts. So back to the original question, why California? I think the reason why California had the influence that it did on Avi's music and why his music sort of constitutes the first real California music and seems to have basically set the template for the mid to late 60s California sound, which is basically its stock and trade or its signature even to this day, is because he seemed to have absorbed so many of the counterculture figures or ideas that were floating around. And California in general, as you know, Ted, and as many other researchers and scholars and historians and critics have noted, but it has always been somewhat of a landscape of the oddball and the eccentric and the quixotic. And so Abby being one of those and being somebody who had musical talent was able to absorb a lot of these fringe ideas and put them in a package. And music being kind of the straw that stirs the drink, socially speaking, that took ideas that came out of poetry or books or you know communes or cults or whatever and things that aren't always accessible to the average everyday person and it put them in their living room on their home speakers and so you know Dharmaland is sort of cut from the same cloth and I have said this to Ted and and we've we've talked about this many times that Dharmaland in some ways is like a musical version of one of you know those really amazing books by J. William Lloyd or other early nature seekers and poets and you know kind of California transcendentalists. So if you love Dharmaland, there's no reason not to go out and seek these other early California radicals out and and even though the work is rare, it it does seem to be adjacent to the Dharmaland ethos, if that makes sense. So the next question comes from Tiki 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 underscore Oakland who asks, 
I'm halfway through the podcast and wondering if you feel you really know what Dharma Land was like in Eden's mind. No. <laughs> I don't feel like I know what was going on in Eden's mind in any kind of definitive or complete way. And I think that brings up maybe an idea that I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is maybe not exactly what you're asking, but I think it's close enough, which is that the Dharmaland album would constitute a final statement of what Dharmaland was. And I don't think that's the case. It is a version of Abhi's Dharmaland. And of course, others can come up with their own sequence. They can cover it or arrange it in ways they want. They could include other songs from the sheet music in the years ahead. But also there's this larger sense that Dharmaland is a place. It is a realm that exists in the creative imagination. And Abhi had a real sense of that. It was written as music on pieces of sheet music and meant to be recorded but at the same time like Dharmaland was a real place in his mind it was some place that he that was tangible enough that he could create music that was pictorial and spoke to what that place in his mind looked like and felt like to be in and I think in that way I'm still very much discovering Dharmaland so I don't know if that makes sense but the album itself to me wasn't the final expression of what Dharmaland was I have other ideas including a short fairy tale booklet that I'd like to produce where it actually treats the narrative underpinnings and ideas embedded in Dharmaland as an actual fairy tale or a place that can be further derived through an examination of its contents. And I think, you know, the other thing that is really important to remember about Dharmaland and Abhi's ability to create long-scale song cycles is that telling spiritually tinged stories gave him a language and a set of genre conventions from, say, religious scriptures to ancient myths to fairy tales in which he could express his most important concerns and also through which he could present his listeners with something of a symbolic experience of the metaphysical, as I said earlier, or what Yeats called Spiritus Mundi, which he defined as the realm from which all creative and magical inspiration springs. And ultimately, I think this is what Abi was doing with the Dharmaland music. I think he was creating a body of work which included songs and lyrics and poems that ultimately acted as a metaphor for the creative process. So in order for you to access Dharma land, I mean, you have to be quiet, you have to be aware, you have to dig into what's, you know, in your mind and your soul and try to remove distractions in the Buddhist sense. But I think in a larger sense, the way to access Dharma land is to access your creative third eye. The more you can tap into your own imagination, the more you will experience this thing that he called Dharmaland, but it will be your own thing. But it is basically a metaphor for the creative process. That's what I think. And so, again, I'm very much still in the process of discovering that realm. Next question comes from Your Biggest Fan, who writes, Hey, Mr. Cool Cat, everything you do is awesome. 
<laughs> Thank you. My question is, how can the rest of us find Dharmaland? And I think I just answered that in the, the answer I gave before. Just get in touch with your creative skills, get in touch with your imagination. That's where you'll find it. That's where the gates will open up. And also, I think, get close to nature. Spend time outside of the rat race, away from your cell phone, away from technology, and away from the things that have a potential to stress us out or get us embroiled in divisive conversation and things like that. Just sort of experience the world as wonder. Okay, Luau Larry writes, Ixtehuele are the best. Can you tell more about how they got involved in this project? So as I said in the first episode of this podcast, and I think I peppered some other factoids throughout the rest of it, Ixtehuele played Tiki Oasis in the summer of 2018, covering some songs by the artist Paul Page, who had a two LP retrospective put out by Subliminal Sounds, which is Ixtehuele's label. And that Paul Page compilation was produced by a friend of mine and a former collaborator of mine named Dominic Priori. And at Tiki Oasis in 2018, he got up on stage with Ixtehuele and they performed a few of Paul Page's songs for the audience. And afterwards, Dominic let to know that I had been developing and working on this Lost Abi song suite for about a decade up to that point. And they expressed interest in being involved and Dominic let me know and I got in contact with Subliminal Sounds. And within a three or four month period, we had agreed about the scope and of the project. And I had sent them all the lead sheets of the songs and my track list that I wanted involved and they demoed a few of the tracks and at that point we made plans to record the album in Los Angeles and I don't really know what else to say. The rest is history, I guess. The final question comes from Smith, D-A-W Smith underscore 5Z, who writes, thank you so much for doing this. It's so enlightening. Were there any outtakes from the sessions that could be released later? What about that popular version of Mana that you mentioned? The short answer is there were no other outtakes, as in songs that were not on the track list. There were obviously a bunch of different mixes. Some were really bare bones mixes from after the LA sessions before the band went back to Sweden and started adding their overdubs. There were early mixes that the band did themselves that were later modified in a heavy period of, of remixing between myself and the band. Yes, there is that popular version of Mana, which Kaja herself basically mixed and sent to us where she double tracked the final one third of the song with, you know, overlapping vocals. And the vocals for that are much more upfront and not so sort of embedded into the landscape of Mana as the final mix had it. And I think at one point we thought that that might end up on the bonus EP that I talked about in the last episode, the themes episode, or that we might release that version as the single, but it didn't happen that way. So I would say that between Ixta's demos, between some of the early post LA mixes, between some of their first mixes that they made, which were a little bit more 
compressed and intended to sound like they were produced in 1962 or a quote unquote authentic Exotica sound plus this Kadra mix. I mean, I think you, if you took them all together, there probably could be an alternative Dharmalan or at least a hodgepodge of various mixes from the various periods that would let people have some more insight into the creative process of Dharmalan. But in terms of actual outtakes, no, there were not any. I think, as I said in several of the episodes, there were 10 songs written in the period between 1960 and 63 by Abi that were not recorded, and mainly that was because they had no similar melodic or lyrical motifs and didn't seem to fit into the larger landscape of Dharmaland, and were more or less just basically Timpan Alley style songs that Abi seemed to have copyrighted for the purposes of having other artists record. They didn't seem to fit in any way with this body of work, which later got recycled for the Song of Eden and Anna and the Scripture of the Golden Age. So those 10 songs, plus I recently found three more during a research trip I did last summer for the Abbey film from that period. So essentially there are 13 additional songs from this period that don't constitute what I think of as like the follow-up to Eden's Island or the song cycle that Abby may have been working on or was sort of unconsciously moving towards that I call Dharmaland. So these other 13 songs, somebody could conceivably record them someday and maybe even somebody else would find some sort of underlying structure or affinity between the songs. But I haven't and I don't have any other plans to record those. Again, there are other song cycles from Abby's larger canon that I'd like to focus on next. So, I don't know, that's the long and short of it. I think an alternate mix, maybe second disc or deluxe edition down the road would be an interesting thing. And again, no outtakes, so. And with that, I will close this 15th and final episode of the Dharmaland podcast off. I want to thank everybody again for tuning in and for sending in such great questions. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope the entire podcast has been enlightening and has enhanced your appreciation of our creative process and everything that went into it and also the music itself. And so stay tuned for the forthcoming Abi documentary and for many, many other things in the years to come related to this great artist. Okay, take care.